Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Ryan, great to be with you and get back a couple of days ago from Albuquerque, New Mexico, where the fall color was just a little bit past its height, but absolutely gorgeous. Weather was gorgeous as well and thoroughly enjoyed it, including the hot food. I love, I love that kind of food. But gave seven different lectures on questions about constitutional law. and Anyway, I'd like to think it went over very well and Look forward to being back there again. It's a land of enchantment in many ways, some of them bad and some of them good. Anyway, before we get into our subject today, which is going to be John Calvin and the way John Calvin and the Reformation of which he took part influenced the development of American law, we might just say a little more about some of the crisis that is going on in America today regarding the vaccine issue. We've got so many things happening right now that indicate that our country is in terrible shape and possibly the best indication of what kind of condition we're in right now is the fact that we have an incompetent leftist as president and yet a lot of us don't really want him impeached because he would be replaced then by a dedicated Marxist that we want even less and I would have to say that Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's best job security. That even those who want to get rid of Biden don't want her. So, difficult situation, but we're looking at these mandates that we have for vaccination. One of them was a mandate requiring that federal agencies that deal with federal contractors need to make sure that for all new contracts that they ensure that all employees of those contractors are vaccinated. And the other was a requirement that all businesses, all employers with more than 100 employees have to get their employees vaccinated. This was an order that came back in September. And the president at that time directed the Occupational Health and Safety Administration to draft regulations to put that into effect, took them quite a long time to do that, which is rather strange considering that this is supposed to be such a great emergency, but they finally released those a week or so ago. And so we have mandates now that are coming from the president through OSHA, telling many businesses that they are required to get their employees vaccinated. We have various lawsuits that are going on. For example, Texas has a law that was instituted, I believe it was an executive order by the governor, actually, and there are similar orders by the governor of Alabama and a number of other states where governors have, or legislatures in a few cases, have prohibited vaccine mandates, that is, prohibited employers from requiring that their employees be vaccinated as a condition for employment. So now, which comes, which takes precedent? The federal mandate of OSHA or the state mandates of the legislatures or governors. And some are taking the position, obviously the Biden administration is taking the position that federal always preempts state. 
But as we've seen in constitutional law, that's not necessarily the case. The Constitution, Article 6, Section 2 says, is the supreme law of the land. And that means all of the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, including the amendments, including the Tenth Amendment, which says power is not delegated to the federal government of the Constitution or prohibited by the Constitution to the states, are reserved to the states respectfully or respectively or to the people. So what it comes down to is this. When the Constitution delegates a power to the federal government, that is the supreme law of the land. When the Constitution reserves a power to the states, that is equally the supreme law of the land. Now, where does the Constitution delegate to the federal government any power to order wide-scale vaccinations? Interesting issue. They'll probably try to argue the general welfare clause, or which deals with spending, not forcing health issues. Or they might try to argue the interstate commerce clause, but I think these will be pretty far-fetched. At any rate, the state of Texas sued the federal government, and I believe several other states are doing the same thing. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's the next level below the Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit, which covers Texas and Louisiana and several of the other states in that area, last Saturday issued a prohibition on this federal injunction and basically, or the federal orders, basically what the Fifth Circuit did is they issued an injunction staying the enforcement of Biden's orders. And anyway, very possibly by the time we meet again next week, we'll have a firm answer from the court as to whether or not that mandate is going to be upheld or not. Meanwhile, there are many other lawsuits. Alliance Defending Freedom has filed a major class action suit. In fact, I believe they filed several in several different courts. Likewise, Liberty Council out of Liberty University has some lawsuits going. And Liberty, or for First Liberty out of Texas is representing a number of military clients. And they're some of the ones that are really under the most heat right now because they can be ordered to do things that civilians can't, and whereas a civilian maybe could be fired, a military person could possibly be court-martialed for refusing an order. And so we have a lot of interesting things going on here, and who's to say what's the results going to be? We think that we have strong grounds in these cases for saying that what President Biden is trying to do enforcing this mask mandate or our vaccination mandate, is unconstitutional. And we'll see whether the court agrees with us or not. But in the meantime, we do have some eternal principles of law that have been articulated by leading Christian thinkers over the centuries. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Martin Luther, and we saw Martin Luther's influence through the Reformation on Western law, and... Today, we're going to look at John Calvin. It's important to look at these together. A lot of Lutherans have the idea that the Reformation really began and ended with Luther. And others, the Calvinists, many times have the idea that Luther was nothing but a footnote on the way to John Calvin's Reformation. Both of them, though, were very, very important. And we are going to take a look at both. 
So let's look at John Calvin and see a little bit about this man. He lived in the 1500s. He was a contemporary of Luther. Although he was younger than Luther, he would follow Luther by about 25 years. They never actually met, although they did have some correspondence, and of course they had some mutual friends, and their lives and ministries overlapped quite a bit. One thing I have to say is that it's a lot easier to systematize what John Calvin wrote than it is to systematize Luther. And there's a couple reasons for this. For one thing, Calvin comes some 25 years later, and he has the benefit of 25 years of Luther's developing thought. For another thing, if you look to Luther, what a magnificent personality the man was. And you really can't separate his writings from his personality. He just puts his personality into his writings just so thoroughly that you can't separate Calvin, I'm told, had a very warm personality, but his writings don't really reflect that. And some, I've heard a Calvinist preacher once describe John Calvin as kind of like a brain, a disembodied brain that is kept in a vat in a laboratory in a tower somewhere in Geneva, Switzerland, and is consulted for pronouncements from time to time. But the other thing is that Calvin, when he wrote, always tried to be very systematic as a lawyer. As a lawyer, he always tried to make sure that what he said today is consistent with what he said back here, and sometimes he strains a great deal to make his writings consistent. Luther, on the other hand, is less concerned with being consistent with himself, more concerned with being faithful to the Word of God. And Luther would say, if the text that I'm preaching on today says predestination, I'll preach predestination. If the text I'm preaching on next Sunday says free will, I'll preach free will, and I'll leave it under God the Holy Spirit in order to work out any inconsistencies there. So Luther leaves a lot of loose ends that Calvin does not, and we'll get more into that after the break. Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And today, Colonel, we're learning about Calvin. Okay, let's continue with our discussion of John Calvin. And like Luther, he emphasized the basic points of the Reformation that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Sola Scriptura, that is Scripture alone is what governs and the works of theologians and priests and bishops and even popes may be helpful, but that is not what ultimately governs. And it is therefore the responsibility of every person to read and interpret the scripture for himself. And as Calvin's allies once said, that every plowboy should be able to read and interpret the scripture for himself. One of the results of that then is that Better make sure every plowboy knows how to read 
And so in Calvinist countries especially, you see a very strong emphasis on literacy. And then sola gratia, salvation by grace alone, that we are not saved by any mixture of grace and works and what the Catholic doctrine said about the treasury of merit and purchasing indulgences and so on. None of these would apply because it is grace alone by which we are saved. And Luther and Calvin both would emphasize that because of that, that we need to emphasize that we are totally sinners. And as total sinners, we can't do anything to save ourselves. It isn't that God will have us do the very best we can, and maybe we'll bring ourselves 90% of the way there and he'll supply the remaining 10%. It isn't even that he supplies 99% and that we make up the other one. It isn't even that he pays the bill and asks us to pick up the tip. He paid it all on Calvary's cross, and we receive it by grace alone, and grace is often defined simply as unmerited favor. We could merit it, it wouldn't be grace. Sola fida, that is salvation by faith alone, that we are, we receive God's grace, not by purchasing it, but by faith alone, simply by believing it and trusting it. Sola Christus, that is, our salvation is found only in Christ, Christ alone, not through any of the saints, not through any of the intermediaries, because there are no intermediaries, not through popes, not even through the Virgin Mary, but through Christ alone. And nothing that we can add to Christ as being the only means of salvation. And finally, sola dei gloria, that is the glory of God alone. That everything we do is not to glorify ourselves, not even to glorify the church, but to glorify God alone. It's been said that there was one man who truly understood the mind of Martin Luther, and that was Johann Sebastian Bach. And Bach would put at the top of every score of music that he wrote those words, Sola Dei Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. On those points, Luther and Calvin would be in agreement. But when we look to where they disagreed, well, some talk about the five points of Calvinism. And anyway, to just summarize those five points of Calvinism, we think of that Calvinist stronghold of the Netherlands. And what's the favorite flower of the Dutch? The what? The tulip. The tulip. And so we use the word tulip to identify the five points of Calvinism. T-U-L-I-P. First point, T, total depravity, which means not just that we are stained by sin, but that we are thoroughly corrupted by sin. As Paul says, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. As Isaiah says, all our righteousness, that is even the things we think are good, are as filthy rags before God. Total depravity of human nature. And at that point, Luther and Calvin would be in agreement. Unconditional election would be the second. T-U-L-I-P, the second is U. Unconditional election. That God didn't elect us because he saw something good in us. He didn't even elect us because he looked down 
through eternity and saw that at some time in the year 1987, Brian Hyde or John Hydesmo would decide to get saved and trust Jesus Christ, God elected us without any regard to that. It was entirely his election. On that point again, Luther and Calvin would be in substantial agreement. Luther or Calvin would accept that totally. Luther, for the most part. And then the third point, limited atonement. Now, here is a major difference between Lutherans and Calvinists, not necessarily between Luther and Calvin themselves. The question is, did Christ die for the sins of everyone? Or did he die only for the elect, let's say only for the saved? And Luther would say, absolutely, Christ died for everyone. Many Calvinists, although I would argue probably not Calvin himself, would say, no, he died only for the elect. In fact, if Christ had died for everyone, and everyone isn't saved, then that would mean that Christ was a failure. He didn't accomplish his mission. Luther is open in this way, and I think between the two, they are close together. It is later Lutherans and later Calvinists that are sharply divided on this. Luther put it this way. He said there is objective reconciliation and subjective reconciliation. Objectively, Christ's death paid for the sins of the whole human race. Subjectively, only the elect, that is believers, receive the benefit of what Christ did for us on the cross. Calvin said almost the same thing. He said Christ's death was sufficient, that is enough, for the whole human race. But it is efficient, that is effective, only for the elect. Sounds to me as though Luther and Calvin are saying almost the exact same thing. And the division really comes among later Lutherans and later Calvinists. Fourth point, irresistible grace. And on this point, Luther and Calvin would be divided. Both would agree on this, that we don't get saved just because I made a decision. I'm going to trust Christ. I've decided that all by myself. No, I couldn't do any good works to get saved, but I can at least make that decision, at least give me credit for that. Luther would say, no, that even that would be claiming credit for ourselves, that we don't have the ability to make any such decision for ourselves. That rather, it is God who reaches out to us with the gift of faith. And all we can do is either accept that gift of faith or reject it. That's Luther. Calvin would go a step further and say, if God reaches out to us with the gift of faith, we cannot reject it. If we could reject it, then we are defeating God. And so Calvin would stand for irresistible grace. Luther would say, no, God's grace can be resisted. In fact, at one point, the Apostle Paul, and I believe it's in the book of Acts, asks, why do you always resist the Holy Spirit? Implying that we can. Calvinists would say, but that's not applied to resisting his gift of faith for salvation. Okay, we've looked at these points, then total depravity, unconditional election, on those Luther's and Calvin's views are pretty much in agreement. Limited atonement, later Lutherans and Calvinists would disagree there. 
irresistible grace. There, Luther would say, you can resist God's grace. Calvin would say, you can't. So there they would differ. Finally, perseverance of the saints. That is, those who are truly saved are going to be saved for eternity and cannot lose their salvation. That would be the position of Calvin. Lutherans would be divided on that issue, and I'd say Luther could be read either way on that. I would say myself that election is in the mind of God. Anyone who is truly elect is going to be elected in God's mind at all times, regardless of the sins that person may commit in his life. Anyone who is not elect is never going to be in the mind, saved in the mind of God regardless. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, this is the Constitution Classroom, but it's important we understand some of the people and the philosophies that influenced those who framed the Constitution. And in the spirit of this today, we are learning about John Calvin. Fascinating to see how far-reaching this man's influence went. Absolutely, and we need to understand that law is based on morality, and morality is based on religious beliefs. So the religious beliefs of those who settled and founded America are very important to understand what our frame of government was intended to be and what the framers meant by the Declaration and by the Constitution. Now, we're going to look at the influence of Calvin in countries that had a great deal of influence on the United States. We're going to be looking at his influence in Switzerland, in the Netherlands, in Scotland, and in England. And then from there, we're going to look at his influence in America. And let's be said from the beginning here that as we look to the influence in America, we can see influence of both Luther and Calvin, but far more of Calvin than Luther. And the reason for that is that the early immigrations to America, those early settlers, Plymouth and Jamestown, came from a Calvinist background in England and Scotland and the like. The Lutheran migrations to America didn't take place in large numbers until the 1800s. There were some in the 1700s, some even in the 1600s, but not nearly as many. In fact, there were two Lutherans at the Constitutional Convention but there were dozens of Calvinists there. You know, you think about the Lutheran church, but you ask, but I haven't ever seen a church that calls itself the Calvinist church. Well, the Calvinist church is different in different countries. In France, the Calvinist church is called the Huguenot church, and you don't see a lot of Huguenot churches here, but you do see some that claim to have come from a Huguenot or French Calvinist background. Those In the Netherlands, usually call themselves Reformed. Two of the major denominations there would be the RCA, the Reformed Church of America, and the Christian Reformed. And those are Calvinists of Dutch background. And then in Scotland, the Presbyterian Church in Scotland is the Calvinist Church of Scotland. And in England, it was called the Congregational Church. Although the Church of England, the Anglican or Episcopal, was had a lot of Calvinist influence there as well, although you, you wouldn't call them Calvinists as thoroughly as you would, say, Scottish Presbyterians. But as we look to the way these influence law, we would say, first of all, that Calvin would place a greater emphasis than Luther on the 
significance of Old Testament biblical law today. Luther would say that biblical law does apply today, but only those portions of it that are intended for universal application as universal moral principles, rather than those that were uniquely for Israel. Calvin would say far more of that Old Testament law applied, and Calvinists themselves would say so, especially the Puritans, as if we look to their codes in Connecticut and in Massachusetts and so on, many times those early Puritan legal codes of the 1600s pretty much just take the book of Deuteronomy and codify it into law. Luther would probably be not, not nearly that literal in its, his application of Old Testament biblical law today, although he would say it does apply. Another would be the point of disobeying civil authority, and that's going to come up quite a bit. Calvin would say that we do have a duty to disobey civil government when government commands what the Word of God forbids, or forbids what the Word of God commands, and would probably even go so far as to say we have a duty to resist government when government exceeds its lawful authority. Luther would agree that we have a duty to disobey when government commands what the Word of God forbids. But if government simply exceeds its authority, Luther might be more inclined to say, we resist that by lawful means, but not by outright interposition or civil disobedience. Example I've used occasionally is, let's say that the government made a law prohibiting skiing. Now, I love to ski. And, and if I were a Calvinist, I might say that God has never given government the authority to prohibit skiing, and so government is exceeding its authority. It is becoming tyrannical in doing so, and so as a Calvinist, I have a duty to resist that tyranny. A Lutheran might be more likely to say, I agree, government has no right to issue an order like that. But on the other hand, there is nothing in the Bible that commands me to ski. And so, I'm not disobeying the Bible by obeying that unconstitutional command of government. And so, I have a duty to obey the command, while at the same time working to get that command changed. That would be a partial difference between Calvin and Luther in that regard. In other words, both believed in civil disobedience, both believed in interposition against government authority, but Calvin would go a little further in that direction than Luther would, and his followers would probably go further than him. There was a fascinating book written titled The Revolution of the Saints, in which he said, the author of this book, whose name escapes me at the moment, suggests that Luther and Calvin were not nearly as far apart in the 1500s on this, as Lutherans and Calvinists became in subsequent centuries. As in Germany, the Prussian state becomes the leading Lutheran state, Lutheranism in the 1800s starts to move toward absolute obedience to civil authority. Whereas in countries like Scotland and England and France, where Calvinists are fighting tyranny, Calvinists during that same time frame move more and more toward a revolutionary theology. But let's look to each of these countries where Calvinism was strong. In Switzerland, for example, which is where 
Calvin lived a good share of his life, Switzerland and partly France as well, but there in Switzerland, he made Geneva his capital, and Geneva became a center of Calvinism, and a number of things happened there. For one thing, he developed biblical principles of government to be applied, and a number of his followers applied those, and Geneva would be one of those in which those were in fact followed. Another would be what we call the Geneva Bible. And Luther had a role in the production of the Geneva Bible as well, not directly, but by his translating of the Bible from the Latin and Greek and Hebrew into German, that laid the groundwork for other translations. And so in 1599, Calvinists in Geneva, who were very favorable to Luther, translated the Geneva Bible. And when you look to the pilgrims, for example, and they're coming to America, we tend to think, well, they must have used the King James Bible. No, they did not. They regarded King James as an enemy. Remember, James is part of the reason they were leaving. James had said, they will submit or I will harry them out of the land. And they wouldn't submit, and so they left. And they wouldn't use the King James Bible. They used the Geneva Bible. Now, the Geneva Bible, it is an excellent translation, but what is especially interesting about the Geneva Bible is the many notes that it contains. Notes that reflect many times on law and government and reflect many times a duty to resist tyrants, particularly some of the Old Testament notes. Talk about the Pharaoh as being a tyrant and others as being tyrants and the duty of the believers to resist. Well, James couldn't put up with that. James, after all, King James of England, is a believer in the divine right of kings. We can't have that. So he said, we can't use the Geneva Bible here. We're not, we're not going to allow that here in England. So to counter that, he directed the production of the King James Bible. Now, James didn't translate that himself, although James was a pretty substantial Greek scholar. But anyway, he instead had a team of scholars translating it. And in the early 1600s, like around 1607, they released the first edition of the King James Bible. James approved it. Those of the dissenting side, the Puritans, they thought this is too Catholic. The Catholics looked at it and said, we can't accept this. This is too Protestant. And so James said, well, we in the middle here, the Anglicans, we are declaring this the official version of the Bible, and it became the official King James authorized version. Of course, didn't have those Geneva notes. But what James did not probably realize is how much his translators relied upon the Geneva Bible in making their translations. So that Geneva Bible out of Switzerland, inspired by the Calvinists, had a major influence on the King James Bible itself. Well, let's move from there to Holland for a moment, the Netherlands. And the Netherlands had been a possession of Spain, but Calvinist theology really took hold in the Netherlands. And there were great Calvinist thinkers there, men like Cornelius Van Thiel and others, but they fight against Catholicism and eventually get the independence of Holland, becomes a independent Protestant nation.
welcome you to our fourth and final segment of this week's Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we're talking about uh, John Calvin and some of the history behind uh, what uh, what he stood for. You mentioned this as, as we were uh, in break here a few minutes ago. We're barely scratching the surface. Is this something we're going to have to carry over into another another week, perhaps? At least another week. We're just scratching the surface here. We're going to talk about Scotland, but... We're not going to have time to talk about England or their effect in America. That will have to come at a later time and probably probably next week. But in the Netherlands, you see great leaders there, prime ministers who are strong Calvinist theologians as well. We see diplomats like Hugo Grotius, who is the author of probably the first Protestant book on apologetics, The Truth of the Christian Religion also called by many the father of international law. His work, The Law of Nations, is an excellent work talking about international law, although there are several Catholic scholars that he relies on some in order to achieve his work, but excellent, very excellent work. But we see a number of great works here on Christian apologetics, on Christian theology, Burkhoff, Burkauer, and others and on law and government itself that come out of the Netherlands, and they have a major influence today. But let's look to Scotland for a moment. Now, in Scotland, of course, Scotland is a Roman Catholic country in the days of William Wallace and some of the days in which we're familiar with Robert the Bruce and some of those early Scottish leaders. They were Catholic, but sometimes they weren't really that willing to submit to the Pope. In fact, for a period of time, Robert the Bruce had even been excommunicated from the Catholic Church because he insisted many times on standing on his own. But as we move into the 1600s and even the 1500s before that, we start seeing some change. And 1528, there was a young Lutheran pastor in Scotland by the name of Patrick Hamilton. Hamilton was led to the state to be burned for his Lutheran faith, and it took six hours to burn him at stake because it was such a blustery day that the wind kept blowing the fire out. But many were amazed at his fortitude as he withstood all of this. And one of those who was amazed by Hamilton was a young soldier by the name of John Knox. John Knox became the father of Scottish Presbyterianism. And we read how as a result of this experience, and some others as well, Knox becomes a Protestant himself and goes to Geneva, where he becomes a follower of more John Calvin than of Martin Luther, but an admirer of Luther as well. And at that time, they didn't necessarily see those as being as distinct as we see them later. He came back to Scotland at the time. He was forced to be a galley slave at one point because he was preaching against Roman Catholic theology. And John Knox, I can guarantee you, was not a man who minced words. He spoke harshly and severely of Catholicism and didn't hesitate to denounce even rulers. At one point, John Knox was asked to address a group of soldiers. And he said, this will be my only opportunity to 
address this ungodly bunch. They won't want to hear me again after what I have to say to them. And so he let them have it both barrels with the law of God and the gospel of God. Much to his amazement, they asked him to be his permanent chaplain. And he did so. But he became the leading theologian of Scotland. And there in Scotland, he would even resist Queen Mary. Now, this is Mary, Queen of Scots, not Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary in England. We're going to see more about her next time. But on one occasion... He has quite an exchange with Mary, Queen of Scots, where Mary, there at Holyrood, which means Holy Cross, she accused Knox of fomenting rebellion against her. He had written a treatise titled First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. She took that to mean he objected to her being a queen because she was a woman. He said, actually, I addressed that more to Bloody Mary in England than to you, but they go on with an interesting exchange. And in this exchange, we can see that Mary herself as a Catholic does know scripture and understands theology. And she says to John Knox, but ye have taught the people to receive another religion than their princes can allow. How can that doctrine be of God, seeing that God commanded subjects to obey their princes? Knox responds, Madam, as right religion took place, neither original strength nor authority from worldly princes, but from the eternal God alone, so subjects are not bound to frame their religion according to the appetites of their princes. Princes are often the most ignorant of all others in God's true religion, as we may read in the histories, as well before the death of Christ Jesus as after. If all, all the seed of Abraham should have been of the religion of Pharaoh, to whom they were long subjects, I pray you, madam, what religion should there have been in the world? Or if all men in the days of the apostles should have been of the religion of the Roman Empire, emperors, what religion should there have been on the face of the earth? Daniel and his fellows were subject to Nebuchadnezzar and unto Darius, and yet, madam, they would not be of their religion, for the three children said, We make it known unto thee, O king, that we will not worship thy gods. Daniel did publicly pray unto his God against the express command of the king. And so, madam, ye may perceive that subjects are not bound to the religion of their princes although they are commanded to give them obedience. Mary responds, Yea, but none of these men raised the sword against their princes. Knox answers, Yet, madam, you cannot deny that they resisted. For those who obey not the commandments that are given in some sort resist. Mary persists in saying, But yet they resisted not by the sword. Knox answers, God, madam, had not given them the power and the means. Mary asks, Think ye that subjects having the power may resist their princes? And now Knox is treading on a little dangerous ground. He could be arrested for his answer to this question. But he says, If their princes exceed their bounds, madam, no doubt they may be resisted even by power. For there is neither greater honor nor greater obedience to be given to kings or princes than God hath commanded to be given unto father and mother. But so it is, madam, that fathers may be stricken with a frenzy. And in that frenzy, he would slay his children. Now, madam, if the children arise, join themselves together, apprehend the father, take the sword from him, bind his hands, and keep him in prison till his frenzy be overpassed, think ye, madam, that the children do any wrong? It is even so with princes, madam. Princes that would murder the children of God that are subjects. Their blind zeal is nothing but a very mad frenzy. 
and therefore to take the sword from them to bind their hands and cast themselves in prison till they may be brought to a more sober mind is not disobedience against princes, madam, but just obedience because it agreeeth with the will of God. And so it sounds like John Knox is a thundering big bully who's pushing around this poor little Queen Mary. We need to remember that Mary is about six feet tall. John Knox is about five foot four, thin, and in bad health. So the picture is not of the bully that you might think he might be. But have to remember at this time, Catholics are rapidly becoming a minority in Scotland. Mary's popularity is waning, not only because of her Catholicism, but because of suspicion that she may be involved in the death of her second husband. So finally, in 1568, she abdicated the throne in favor of her son, James VI of Scotland, who becomes James I of England. Knox continues to preach and write until he dies in 1572. As I say, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland is simply the church that was established by John Knox. And you will never, probably in all history, imagine a man who is more fearless in the way he proclaims the gospel than was John Knox. In fact, at his graveside funeral service, James Douglas, who was the Earl of Morton, the Scottish Laird of Morton, as they would say, said of him, Here lies one who never feared the face of man. But you look at his gravestone, which is now paved over, it's a parking lot today. And the gravestone simply says, I.K., that is Ian or John Knox, 1572. Charles Brokenshire has written of him, Scotland has erected no monument on the grave of John Knox, because Scotland is his monument. The Scotland of the 1600s, the 17 and 1800s, was the Scotland of John Knox, the Presbyterianism of Scotland that came to America and became the backbone of the American Reformation was the Reformation of John Knox. Unfortunately, even that is largely faded in Scotland today. Scotland today is largely a pagan socialist welfare state. But the spirit of John Knox is not totally dead. May it rise again. <laughs> 